Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to True Restoration. Here is your host. We are going through the textbook, Tradition and the Church by Monsignor George Aegis, and we are up to halfway through chapter 10. Father, we can start with the headline. The consent of some of the fathers when the others are silent or not contradicting is a sure argument of divine tradition. What does that What does that exactly mean, please, Father? <clears throat> well, Monsignor actually just um, in this chapter very uh, describes that um, very well, but it's very simple, really. And he starts off actually the very first sentence of that. He says, "To reach moral certainty in a Christian truth, it is not necessary to have the consent of all the fathers." You know, because uh, just a side note in a certain sense is that sometimes you'll have um, people like. Um, well, like we discussed in the first part of this chapter uh, in regards to like the recognized resistors or, or have you in St. Saint, Saint, uh, Bellarmine, um, you know, well, some of the fathers, you know, didn't, didn't uh, put forth their um, uh, exposi- exposition on certain subjects or on, on whether a pope can be a heretic. Or sometimes you have like the heretics like um, the Fenites, you know, put forth, well, you know, it wasn't all of them who had said or mentioned, you know, things on um, the three baptisms, etc., you know, they'll put forth as that somehow that's, you know, an explanation saying, see, aha, it's not then, we don't have to believe it. But there are certain truths, um, and, and some of them, of course, are very important ones, very major ones, um, that were defended not by all um, the fathers of the church, even by just maybe a few. Uh, against whatever heretics of their times, and it's um, when, when, as Monsignor says, when there are certain dogmas or, or doctrines that were attacked, of course the whole church was affected by that. Uh, in fact, eventually, of course, the whole church knew what was going on, but the church left the whole matter sometimes to a few, because knowing well that it was to those few in those hands that she committed that defense of her truths that were they were well capable to apply or to defend what needs to be defended and what needs to be put forth. You know, it's, it's, uh, um, you know, the whole church, of course, again, was new and was watching this. And, and as Monsignor says, watching and praying without ceasing for the triumph of the church. Um, and so the defenders then attacked, attacked that heresy in whatever form or whatever error it was and defended the faith so valiantly and explained the Catholic dogma so completely that there was no need of of too many others to explain i mean it's uh, so that would explain why some of the fathers offered little or no even defense on some uh, uh doctrines that were being attacked um, because they were um already being explained very well and being defended very well by those uh, and so you know and it, we if um, we know that whenever an in, in, in innovation or error began to creep into the church, as even uh, some chapters ago we talked about that as well, um, in the universal church, that it, the fathers never remained silent on that. They always gave the alarm, and they always never ceased to oppose it until it was entirely crushed. And you know, at times there were some who were just a few, but then there are times there were many who would defend. It depended on the heresy or the the extent of it or the area maybe that that heresy popped up but it is 
true, and Monsignor writes and ends that little short little chapter, he says, it is therefore certain that Christian antiquity believed that the consent of several of the fathers of the church, when the others remained silent or did not contradict, was a sure proof of divine tradition. This is also the belief of the church today. So it doesn't mean that, you know, the other church, that the other fathers of the church, um, you know, didn't care or they they um, didn't know about it. I'm sure they did. Um, but these there's just a few of them were needed to defend whatever her, uh, whatever against whatever heresy that was there or error. And if there was something that was going wrong, if they, I mean, if there was a father again of the church who was teaching maybe something in error, there would have been the other fathers, maybe not maybe they would have been the other fathers who would have piped in and said, wait a minute, no, 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 and and so, but. You know, this is why, again, even in some major weighty materials of dogmas, you know, you find some fathers of church who were silent on it. It's not that they didn't believe it, or it's not that they were, you know, rejected it. It's just that there were others who were taking care of it. And and so the church let that be like it is. There's no point in all the fathers double paddling. Why, why should they all be concentrating their efforts on the one subject? It doesn't make sense on a practical level to do that. That's right. I, I mean, that's very. That's, that's that's another good example of how our faith, as well, is not only, of course, spiritual, theological, but it's also practical. Father, you've pretty much answered this in your previous answer, but we could talk about the headline on page two hundred and seventeen: the consent of either all the Western or of all the Eastern fathers, or even of very few of the fathers, when the rest do not contradict, is a sure argument of divine tradition. Did you want to expand on that any more, Father, or do you think you have covered that enough in the last answer? Um, well, I think we can just I can just quote a little a couple of things from Monsignor wrote, which probably explains it, I'm sure, better than I did. Um, but he says um, on page 217, he says, even a small number of the fathers affirming or testifying to the same doctrine must have our whole confidence and assent when the rest of the fathers do not contradict them. It may happen, and it has happened, that some dogmas of the Christian religion were attacked in some districts only, and only the fathers of those places refuted such local heretics. Um, so it's like I said you know, before, that uh, some heresies popped up in certain sections of the church, uh, certain areas of the church, where it didn't you know, affect necessarily right away um, other areas, like there are some you have the fathers of the Eastern Church, uh, those of the Greek fathers. They could have a doctrine, they could sustain a doctrine, which of course the fathers of the Latin Church also held, but yet it was not necessarily affecting the ones in the Latin Church. So the Eastern fathers would, the Greek fathers would take care of that, uh, and but the whole church would, would know and be watching in that regards because both the fathers, both of the East and of the West, were they were uh, um, they both of course have the same faith i mean it's the uh, we and so they kept it all un, and 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 unadulterated and explained to their fox flocks and defended it from attacks of the enemy wherever it uh um, may come and so monsignor again just adds on 219 at the very end he says it is evident then that even from the testimony of a few we may know what were the faith and practices of the church in their own times. That is the tradition of the whole church. And the tradition of the whole church is a sure argument of truth. Hmm. Now, this is a very good quote, I'd say, Father. The headline on page 220. 
Although the fathers of the church are not infallible, their authority is so great that whenever any one of the fathers does not appear to be of one mind with the others, we must be very cautious before declaring that he is in error or not in accord with the rest of them. <clears throat> yes, that I mean that touches a little bit too as what we explained a little bit before um, as well is that the uh, fathers uh, and doctors of the church considered as individuals, as Monsignor writes, you know, may be rightly compared then to the individual bishops of the church. And the bishops, considered, of course, as one body acting under and with the head of the church, the Pope, are infallible because it is through St. Peter and St. Peter's successors that the bishops cannot fall into error in faith or morals. So it is the head of the church that communicates that infallibility, as Montaigne says, to the other principal members of the body, which is the bishops of the church. But the fathers or doctors of the church, as Monsignor writes in a similar way, is also immune from error so long as his consent agrees with the consent of the others. Um, so when all the fathers and doctors of the church agree on a certain doctrine, their consent is not a private one. It exhibits then the consent of the church, which is infallible. It's like what we mentioned before the, in the first part of the chapter, you know, that the it is a, basically like the doctors or the fathers of the church are just restating what the church has already taught, <coughs> which I just believe. But Monsignor goes and says, in the case where a particular father of the church does not agree on some proposition with the rest of the fathers, we must conclude that he departed from the truth. But we must be very slow, therefore, or before we come to that conclusion. Um, so, in other words, <coughs> Monsignor says, you know, we must first see whether or not that father's opinion could be made to harmonize with the others. And, and he gives a, a, a few notes here, or just a few little sections uh, to explain that. I, I'll just read a few of them that I think explain the the chapter very well. And he says the first uh, explanation is, is that the authority of one or even of several fathers of the church is not infallible because with the exception of the successor of St. Peter on matters of dogma and morals, no man is infallible. So it, he's just reminding us, reminding the church, that you know the fathers and the doctors of the church individually are not infallible. In other words, the, they can make mistakes and error at times. Uh, you know, what they've written. And the successor of St. Peter is obviously the Pope. Yes, right. And so the successor, came, but the successor of St. Peter cannot. He's, he's, in, he's covered by infallibility when he speaks on faith and morals. Um, but the doctors and, and, dog, and doctors and the Fathers of the Church, they can err sometimes. And then they have at least gone seemingly, as Monsignor has mentioned, seemingly have maybe have gone off uh, the track on certain things. But always we're slow to to rush to that judgment until we see the the grander things. Because second thing he says is truth more than authority is always and in everything the principal motive. And he says Saint Augustine and others affirm that they are moved not so much by the authority of the fathers as by the mean as the reasons and proofs which they present for their statements. In other words, it's not because Saint Augustine is writing that everything then is what he what saint augustine says is you know right and true and etc it's what he has put forth as the reasons and proofs of course that is from there it's not because of the person 
what has been put forth as the reason and proofs, um, which we can then judge. The church judges whether that's right or it's not. Mm, it's in it's invalid reasoning to say this person said it, therefore it must be correct. You have to look at what the person pro- uh, proved or what their opinion or yeah was based on. Right, right. And so uh, the third thing that the Monsignor puts forth as well, he says, quite often the dissent of one or more from the general consent of the rest of the fathers is apparent or exaggerated by the ill-disposed enemies of tradition. In other words, uh, you often even hear this today. Someone saying something like, well, St. Thomas Aquinas says this, he said this and this and this. Well, then you go back to what St. Aquinas, St. Thomas Aquinas actually wrote. And it's not exactly what that person has been saying or has said it. That, you know what I mean? It's, it, and so you have to, uh, sometimes things are exaggerated and sometimes they're maybe misunderstood um, or put forth as that. Um, and often it's used again by the enemies of the church. Protestants are very good at this, um, you know, to to uh, use the fathers of the church for their own advantage. Um, but some of the times you also have, you know, obscure sentences of any writer are made also, again, clear through the general context of his work. In other words, you have to look at the whole context of it. Um, and and, and uh, uh, Monsignor's next point, he says, as none of the fathers is to be blindly followed, so none of them is to be on any question regarded of little importance or disregarded without sufficient reason. On the authority of a father of the church, considered individually, follows the rule of St. Augustine. And I think this is great. He says, what you see as true, hold and attribute it to the Catholic church. What is false, reject and do not mind me who am only a man. What is doubtful, believe until reason will persuade or authority will demand that it must be either rejected or declared true or always to believe. So in other words, St. Augustine is just reminding people of his own work. He says, don't believe it because I say it. Believe it. And if it is true, measured against what the church has taught, then say, yes, it's true because it's what the church teaches. Um, what's doubtful, of course, then you have to believe it until otherwise the church speaks or until uh, um, it's to be discarded. And the another point, and I think this is a this point I think Monsignor writes as well can be certainly applied very much so prominently today. He says, it is certain that the consent of all the fathers in any period of the history of the church never was or is in opposition to the consent of all the fathers of another age or epoch. Truth is always one and eternal. According to the promise of Christ, no false doctrine could ever be believed by all the faithful in any time of the church. There may be, in a preceding period, an apparent, not a real opposition, a weak, not a firm consent, common consent, but never a different profession of faith. And again, that's just a condemnation of Vatican II, like we had uh, touched on in the first half of this chapter last show. Um, I mean, that is... You know that is a, a, a just puts it very clearly is that you know there's it, it, nothing can be in opposition to the consent of all the fathers of another age or epoch. Yes, Vatican II. The one of the main errors would be that the promulgation of the doctrine that you can be saved through a religion of your choosing that was never taught 
throughout the ages. So this book just shows that that doctrine being different to what Vatican II teaches just shows how wrong Vatican II really is. Well, I mean, and the practicalities of that. And so you can look at the fathers of the church. Could you imagine any of the fathers of the church or any of the doctors of the church who are refuting the heresies of heretics or and could say, well, I'm only refuting this, um, but really, you know, what they're saying or what their religion is and other, they're, they're, it's a way for salvation for them. So why would you spend all that time even shedding one's own blood as being a martyr to uphold the truth of that the Catholic faith is the only faith, the Catholic Church is the only church, outside of it, of course, is all false. Mm. Why would you put so much effort into to, to defend that or to the mo- to even to the point of, again, giving your life? If now Vatican II teaches, well, that, you know, these other religions, you know, that's a pathway of salvation for, for those people there. So, you know, it, it's even on a very, just a simple understanding just contradicts what the fathers of the church stood for, which is, of course, the truth, which is the church, which is uh, the, what, uh, of the, of the, of the church. So the Monsignor, just the last couple of little notes he makes in this chapter, he, he says, uh, we must admit that some of the sentences of some of the fathers on some doctrines can never be harmonized with the general consent of the rest of the fathers. And in such cases, then their sentences are to be rejected. They have simply erred. We must not wonder, however, at some errors of some of the fathers. This teaches us that no individual father is a canonical or scriptural writer. In other words, each one of them wrote as a human being, not as the truth itself, nor as an infallible instrument again in the hands of God. Some wrote when a question was obscure and before the church issued a solemn declaration putting an end to that question. Others, others wrote under the impression that some books, and the Monsignor gives, like the Shepherd of Hermas or the Epistle of Barnabas, were a part of Scripture before the church has, of course, solemnly disca- declared what was the canon. Uh, and so, in other words, that uh, um, some of the fathers, if they would write and they would be in things of error, oftentimes it was because just because of a, uh, they themselves were under an impression of an error, of something that was maybe not fully available to them at that point, or what have you. But there, again, Monsignor's just reminding that they can err. I mean, and they have at times erred, but it's, of course, the church has always reminded us when they have. They've not, it's not, we're not today to look back and read something of, of St. Gregory the Great or of St. Thomas Aquinas or and make our own choices and say, I think that's an error. No, the church has already done that. We've had the church has already said, no, this is this is not don't we don't this is they erred on that. But you know, ninety nine percent of the time they did not. Um, you know, that, that, that we believe what is uh, of course because that is what the church has taught. And so, you know, and Monsignor ends really says a couple of things. He just says, no matter how erroneously the fathers may have written, it is a fact that they never erred on revealed doctrines, which are the fundamental and vital doctrines of the church. They were always believed and always to be believed because contained in the symbols, creeds, or in the public professions of faith. And so it is 
certain then that whenever the fathers aired, their air was not about tradition. There, it was often again on their own private opinions on some doctrinal matter, but it was not as if it was uh, again uh, on tradition itself or uh, on the uh, uh, from say things of the creed or public professions of the faith. Mm, Father, uh, you said, and the book says as well, that some fathers of the church have it, as you explained. Some people might say, well, isn't the Catholic Church supposed to be guided by the Holy Ghost? Is it not infallible? But would you say that the response to that is, yes, if they do err, then the Catholic Church would declare it in error? Yes, yes. Yeah, because uh, Monsignor does remind us again that, you know, the sheer fact that, because you're talking here on, on things of faith and morals, is that, uh, the extension of infallibility, the Holy Ghost keeps the the pronunciation of the Church, whether it be the Pope, whether it be the bishops in union with the Pope, etc. On the like in councils, etc. You know those are the protected by infallibility. The things of of the writings of some even saints sometimes, you know, uh, possibility that they're they're not covered by infallibility. Uh, only as Monsignor explained before, um, only they're only when they are in, of course, in union and consent, and just re- basically reiterating what the Church, who is infallible, has already taught. We covered that if there is a father of the Church who seems to be erring, seems to be contradicting what other fathers of the Church believe, we should be very cautious and very slow and very respectful as well. And I see on page two hundred and twenty-one, you can see Saint Augustine writing about uh about a particular father of the church being wrong and you can see the reverence and respect through his words not through my own opinion but from the doctrine of the universal church which doctrine was afterwards strengthened and confirmed by the authority of a plenary council so acknowledging that the church has spoken um and has declared the contradiction incorrect and very respectfully saying it can't be true then right yes there's a Yes, and and this is why, of course, you'll have even today some, like again, it's people who are in heresy or error, um, you know, will say things like, I've heard, well, you know, St. Alphonsus Ligori was a heretic, Uh, St. Thomas Aquinas was a heretic because he said this or that, and, you know, they throw around that trying to uphold their own error or heresy that they're proposing, you know, and trying to say, well, you know, but so you can see the difference between, uh, you know, those who are heretics saying that or those who are, you know, faithful, like St. Augustine, and when he explains, no, very reverently, but very respectfully, no, that he was in error. Um, and as often it's because, again, it was just a lack of maybe information available or lack of just a judgment on a certain matter. But uh, yes, the reverence was always still there. Mm. I find that humorous. I mean, it's sad, but it's humorous how some people to defend their own heresy, their own error, will actually call out people like St. Thomas Aquinas and St. Alphonsus Liguri as heretics. That's, uh, you just can't be Catholic, surely, because that would mean they they could not be canonized saints if they were heretics. Surely not. Right, right. Exactly. (laughs) But Vatican II says that you can go to heaven by your own means. So I guess it's whatever floats your boat, isn't it, Father? Oh, yeah. Yeah, basically, <laughs> right. Right. All heretics, so they're all, I mean, 
a, a dog barks the same way. It's just a, sometimes a different pitch. Mm. Oh, could you imagine if that was true? I mean, imagine all the persecutions. St. Thomas More died because he wouldn't give in to King Henry. But uh, King Henry's church, uh, Vatican II says essentially that, well, Bergoglio said recently that if there is no Novus Ordo church available, then you can go to an Anglican church. Sure. Yeah. Well, don't know how St. Thomas More would feel about that one. Right. Right. Well, this is how they they often will, sh- of course, shoot themselves in the foot, even because, say, uh, Novus Ordo goes to an Anglican service. Well, say, goes to a high Anglican service. Well, that's basically the Latin Mass, ultimately. I mean, and it very looks it re- looks like the church used to, Catholic church used to. So you can imagine they go there and they're seeing basically things more Catholic, quote unquote, than they go to their local Novus Ordo. So it's, you know, it's, it's kind of ironic in a certain way. One of the show hosts for Behind the Lodge Door on True Restoration, Daniel, Daniel Ford, he said to me, I went to the SSPX and they said I could go to the Novus Ordo. I went to the Novus Ordo and they said I could go to the Anglican Church. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. Well, moving on, Father, we can go to the headline on page 224. The fathers did not advocate the sufficiency of the scriptures to the exclusion of tradition. Well, this is again uh, where, where Protestants, of course, you know, so sola fide or, or um, sola scriptura, um, you know, only the scriptures. Uh, you know, Protestants are, of course, very good at that. But and this is where they often will look to the fathers of the church, and again, that's one of the ironies too, where you you have some Protestant. Uh, you know, citing St. Augustine or, or uh, even St. Ambrose or something. And you, you're, as you listen to them citing that, I, I mean, you kind of shake your head and say, um, you know, this was, our, uh, what church did they belong to? I mean, they, they were Catholic. <laughs> so, but they'll take things out of context very much. And so maybe you'll have one sentence, well, as Monsignor says, illust- uh, uh, being illustrating or affirming you know, taking out of its proper setting may express a different or opposite view. So like the fathers have written so many works, opposed so many enemies and so many different circumstances, it is little wonder that isolated statements taken out of context might seem to admit the sufficiency of scripture. But on every page, they insist on tradition and the authority of the church. And there's the key again. We hear that over and over, the authority of the church, not private interpretation or not but on the authority of the church and so um you know you do have um uh, it is always presupposed when even if you would read in like monsignor says when they affirm the sufficiency of scripture they do not exclude but suppose tradition in other words it's it's kind of like it's common knowledge that revelation of course is both Scripture and tradition has always been that way. It's always been taught from the very beginning because it's the truth. Um, and so, you know, you wouldn't not necessarily, when you're confronted with an error or heresy and, and you want to use maybe scripture to combat that, because that's often the common basis, you know, for a heretic like Protestant, we can talk, okay, fine, they look at the scriptures. Well, okay, let's use the scriptures then and, and um, to kind of debate this point to what have you. But you wouldn't always just say, well, okay, scripture and tradition says this. Scripture and tradition says this. Scripture and tradition. No, you say, 
you know, you wouldn't have, it'd be like a broken record all the time. It'd be redundant sometimes to say it. It's always been just presupposed that when you're talking about revelation, it's always been scripture and tradition. And so the, when they talk about the sufficiency of the scriptures only, um, you know, it's, it's presupposed, of course, the scriptures and tradition. So, you know, if a truth, like Monsignor says, if a truth is clear in the scriptures, uh, the fathers did not deem it always expedient to prove it from other sources. Um, so, you know, if, if if the answer to that heresy is in Scripture, well, that was sufficient then. I didn't have to go to explain it through this tradition or that tradition. I can just... So, you know, that's what they mean. Or they referred to them, to the Scriptures, like I said, as a, as a common ground, proving that only the Scriptures and not any sort of apocryphal books you know, are the written word of God. So you can use that as a defense for whatever is being attacked. Um, and Monsignor goes and he says also, says it is true that the fathers affirm that the scriptures contain whatever must be explicitly believed. For that reason, they call the apostolic creed a symbol or abridgment of the scriptures. In other words, they spoke of the scriptures uh, which must be explained not as already explained. In other words, you know, that's what Monsignor says, you know, again, uh, as scriptures that must be explained. That is, the fathers wanted the scriptures explained through the church. And and so Monsignor says, and asked uh, the, the kind of rhetorical question, is who does not know that as soon as a controversy arose about the true sense of the scriptures, even about the articles of faith, which must be explicitly believed, the fathers wanted all the faithful to follow the teaching of the church. And again, there's that, the teaching of the church, the church being the, the final say, the final interpreter of whatever. And so there, there uh, but the fathers often would sometimes explain certain things of, on some occasions, uh, to to proclaim the absolute sufficiency of the scriptures, they again simply wanted the faithful to have recourse to the scriptures to say, "Okay, here," because they know that the scriptures refer faithful to the church to learn from her what they must believe and practice. So again, it is always uh, you, know, you can point to the scriptures to to understand something or to explain something, but the scriptures themselves always point to the church to interpret that, to explain that. A good example, Father, where you're saying how Protestants will always say, oh, Scripture, 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 and they pump that down your throat. And one thing they will uh, say as well is, oh, confession is ridiculous. You, Someone can't absolve your sins like that. And then, uh, of course, another thing is the Pope. So you say, what about when Christ said, upon this rock I shall build my church or something to that effect? <sighs> Protestants don't actually deny that. <laughs> Every time I speak to a Protestant, they just give me this look like, oh, what? Like, they, they can't explain it. And then they go, but it's, it's ridiculous confession. And the, the Pope is like, well, Christ said this. It's in your Bible even. Please explain that first. And then, <sighs> pin, you know, you can hear a pin drop. <laughs> right. Right. No, they, 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 I mean, they don't really have much of an explanation for that. They often will skip over that or they'll... Or they'll um, they'll uh, not belittle it per se, but they'll you know kind of try to skip over it as quickly as possible because there's they don't have a sufficient really uh, answer for it. 
um the biggest mistake i think was whoever edited the king james bible why not just take that out just i i sometimes wonder that because they've left this thing in there this passage that just destroys them if i was going to institute a false religion like that i'd say well that doesn't look too good let's delete that but i wonder why they left it in right so i mean it it's it is it's one of those uh, um inconsistencies of course with protestantism uh that you're just you know it's like talking to a brick wall sometimes because they don't really have an answer and because they don't have an answer for it they they deem it really not necessary or not important too important and you know so they'll concentrate on something else it's kind of like you know the if i that they're very good again at knowing scripture as far as quoting certain verses and they can quote it by verbatim and in their mem you know memorize it <clears throat> but it's only ones that of course that they can explain or they know that support they think support their heresy um, but ultimately if you look in the larger context if you look in everything else it destroys it but that's why Monsignor and ends in that kind of or close to that chapter. He says, you know, therefore, according to the fathers of the church, not all the truths are clear in Scripture. What is clear is not clear enough to all the faithful that they may that they may understand it without the help of tradition. If any controversy arises, it cannot be settled without the authentic judgment of the church, which is the rule and the final tribunal to define and declare the true sense. And so again, Scripture. To understand scripture, you need the church. You need an inf infallible source to explain that infallible truth of scripture and not some private judgment. Absolutely. It's kind of like legislation and then you've got the, the courts as well. Pretty much all Western civilization, the legal systems are as such that you have the legislatures such as parliament. And then what's in who interprets that is, of course, the courts. So if you just had legislation and then each citizen was given free reign to just decide what it means, you'd just have chaos. It just wouldn't work. Right. That's why you have, you know, like here, especially in the South, I mean, you, we have, uh, we kind of name certain row, certain uh, streets, you know, like we have Baptist row, where on this whole block, you have like five Baptist church right in a row, and they all teach something different, totally different on, you know, <laughs> it's the same, you know, Presbyterians and Methodists and yeah. all that, the same. I mean, there, there's, there's, it's chaos is what it mm. is. And I think the same would apply to the Novus Ordo. There's some Novus Ordo, quote unquote, priests. Some of them, I think, would be true priests. Um, some of them, obviously, just people, not priests at all. But they teach different th things because some are more conservative and would say, oh, no, you, you can't, you just can't give communion to divorced and remarried. But there would be some liberal, quote unquote, priests who would say, of course you can. Absolutely you can. So I, th that just, I think that's another example of just how close to Protestantism the Novus Ordo Church is becoming. Well, absolutely. It's a, it, is, it is what it is. Another Protestant sect is what it is mm. ultimately because – you know the church is a visible organization it's visible it you can recognize it you can you know the church as our lord has given us by the four marks one holy catholic and apostolic and all you have to do is look at the first one one and it does not apply to the novus ordo at all and so it's it doesn't apply to protestantism so argo that's not that's just another protestant sect as well because i mean like you said nobody believes the same thing ultimately yeah it doesn't have the four marks of the church there the true church onto the headline on page 229 
the opinion or doctrine approved by some of the fathers that Christ will reign upon earth with the just for a thousand years does not impair the statement that the consent of the fathers or of the faithful is a sure proof of divine tradition. Well, this uh, this chapter is kind of an example, you can say, of uh, of the the need of the to listen to the church uh, as far as the interpretation of scripture. And you know, this is a kind of a um, Monsignor talks about because this was quite um, prevalent in when he wrote this as well as even uh, because of. Uh, the old kind of uh, belief, uh, kind of a literal belief that uh, speaking of in the book of the Apocalypse, of course, about uh, the reigning of Christ for a thousand years uh, on on the earth and, and, and kind of it was taken for a little while, uh, literally, not by all, but by some kind of literally that it would be a a reigning of Christ again for a thousand years here on this earth, and 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 uh, and this is a as uh, you see that though picked up by um, some Protestant sects as well, and it has been taught like that for well, of course, in our modern times too. And, and Monsignor mentions two of them that we know, of course, of now is the Mormons and the Adventists, you know, Seventh Day Adventists, um, but. They're called as the the technical term or theological term is they're called millenarians. And so Monsignor writes, he says on page two thirty one, he says, We would take no notice of this doctrine were it not that its adoption by fathers of the second and third centuries and by many Catholic people seems to impair the statement that the common consent of the fathers in every century and the general belief of the faithful is a rule of divine tradition. For it is well established that after the third century, practically all the fathers and the faithful rejected it. <clears throat> so, but Monsignor goes on to explain s- some things and in, in that the, the, the belief in a kingdom upon earth for a thousand years was not only rejected by the fathers and the faithful after the third century, but even in the third and in the second centuries, it was not universal, but it was never condemned by the church. So. You know, it was one of those, uh, and he goes through um, uh, some examples, uh, some um, of uh, of what kind of explaining this a little bit more. I mean, it's a certainly we can look at it in the general sense of the, of the chapter as well as to explain. There are some things that were put forth not as a consent of, of the fathers, but some fathers had put forth and maybe some had followed, but it was later, of course, even at the time, or maybe even a little later, was deemed, wait a minute, that's that's not that's not right. Or that's it's a misinterpretation of that. But Monsignor writes, he says, if we consider the origin of millenarianism, uh, we may observe that nearly all of its Catholic authors lived in or were in some way connected with Asia Minor. So it was kind of like a regional thing at first it was kind of a regional belief uh and it, but it was not a universal belief it was just kind of started in that area or had some connection with uh, asia minor and it says most of the fathers and theologians of the church since the fourth century interpret the text of the apocalypse on which the millenarians base their belief according to saint augustine and and saint augustine who's the holy doctor he takes the chapter that's taken from in in as allegorical 
in other words, one of the hardest books of the of the Bible to understand is the book of the Apocalypse. I mean, it is quite um, difficult because uh, there's a lot of fantastical things there. I mean, a lot of, you know, very, very, very symbolic in many ways and very, <clears throat> so, you know, there's a, it's a, it certainly is easy for, say, uh, like, well, say uh, that private or that uh, private interpretation, you know, so of someone to look at the book of the apocalypse and begin to think certain things, uh, reading things that maybe are symbolic as somehow literal and, you know, the errors that can flow from that. And so he goes through some of them. Um, as an explanation to that, like the number of 1,000 years is intended to express the plenitude of time by a perfect number, not necessarily like, you know, exactly 1,000 years. So it's like the time between the first advent of Christ and then the seduction by the Antichrist. Or the binding of the devil means that the former dominion of Satan is broken, not absolutely, but diminished that God may permit him to tempt man, but not above his forces because of Christ's grace. And so, you know, Monsignor really ends in this, and he says, in any case, the kingdom of Christ, of which the Apocalypse speaks, can only be applied to the Church. And so, comparatively, few Catholics followed it, in other words, to that teaching of the millenarism. And if some of the Fathers believed it, others rejected it. There was never a common consent of the Fathers or of the faithful. It was an opinion. Uh, the Church neither condemned it nor approved it, and it was never regarded as an article of faith based in apostolic traditions. And so, uh, but again, this is where you might find um, some people will will take certain things like that and say, well, see that we have the ability to have our opinion on whatever we want then. Um, you know, but you know, just because, but no, we have to look at the whole context of that. We have to look at what the church ultimately has uh, said. And, 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 but it was. Uh, again, as as Monsignor points out, uh, that from the third, fourth century on, I mean, it was rejected totally. I mean, uh, I, they just said, no, that was, maybe some of them maybe believed that, but it was just out of error. We don't, this is not what, the, this is not of apostolic tradition. This is not, you know, so they looked at the book of the apocalypse as often for what it was, again, as a lot of it, or some of it, I should say, is allegorical, as, as very symbolic. And, and but this is why, you know, we leave it to in the hands of the church, uh, you know, to her interpretation of those things, um, because certainly by our by our private interpretation, we can take things way out of context. Mm. Has the church declared the book of the apocalypse as allegorical or metaphorical? They've said it's not to be taken literally. <clears throat> well, um we have we we have to be careful when we say certain things like um um, like Vatican II, of course, modernists have put forth things like the historical critical method and, and things of that nature as interpreting Scripture as to diminish the authority of Scripture, to diminish the teaching of the Church. Um, so the, you know, the Church uh, has declared, of course, that Scripture itself, all of it, is to be believed as the Word of God. It is not, you know, we cannot interpret it or, or believe it all otherwise. But there are things that, uh, um, especially in the book of the Apocalypse, that again are, are symbolic. But the Church has put forth her 
understanding on some of those things. You can look at some of the uh, interpret uh, like um, uh, some of the saints, of course, written on it. I believe uh, um, uh, I think Saint Augustine or not or uh, um, Saint Alphonsus Liguori, I think, has some things that maybe written on it. And but other other theologians, of course, have put forth you know, some interpretations of this, what it means, or this is a possibility that it could be meaning this, but this is one of the things that we're, the clarity of it necessarily is not, uh, is not specific. In other words, uh, you know, there are certain things that, um, again, the church has not said, this is exactly how this is going to happen per se. It says that it will happen in a general sense, but the what is necessarily kind of symbolic or allegorical, you know, it's it's to be believed, but yet, you know, to to maybe not at this point to be understood quite fully per se, uh, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. So obviously, it, you would say that it's true because it is obviously true because it is scripture, but the interpretation of it, due to it being very metaphorical and allegorical can be construed incorrectly very easily. Yes, very easily. In fact, that's probably one of the books of Scripture that is uh, quite... Um, this is That's where like Protestants will often get, you know, those who have the, the doomsday kind of Protestants kind of ones, uh, you know, that they'll take that, those thing, a lot of those things maybe literally to where they're not necessarily meant to be literally, but as a symbol. Um, and you know that's why you get all sorts of crazy interpretations often from that. Father, is the book of the apocalypse is that the only book in the Bible that is to be taken allegorically, or are there other books that are not to be taken literally but allegorically? Well, there's a there are sections of, of scripture that um, you know, like our Lord, of course, speaks often. In, in parables, um, you know, and things of that nature. And he speaks, like, giving examples. Okay, this is, you know, uh, not maybe not necessarily as they, they happen specifically like that, but he gives us, like, an example to uh, to show that, you know, this is the teaching that I want you to hear or understand. Um, so um, you, you look and... Uh, Pope Leo the Thirteenth, of course, uh, had uh, wrote in a beautiful encyclical in regards to how uh, about Holy Scripture um, and and how to read it and how to uh, interpret it. And he actually he was the one, who, of course, who gave great indulgence. If you know, if one would spend fifteen minutes uh, reading Holy Scripture, of course, there's an indulgence attached to that each day. Um, so <clears throat> you have. Uh, the church has laid down the parameters, of course, of things of, of how to to read scripture and what things. Uh, and this is why it's always good to have um, a uh, you know good uh, resources available. You know, uh, uh, Cornelius Lapide is a great resource. You have uh, as far as the uh, commentaries on the scripture. You have. Um, St. Thomas Aquinas uh, has put together, they call it the golden chain. Uh, it's a great, uh, as well, talking fathers of the church and, and many of the saints, uh, commentaries on the scripture. Um, so those are the things that you certainly can look to and uh, to clarify, to help you clarify what, the, what how the church interprets uh, 
scripture and parts of scripture. With the, as you said, um, the uh, book of the apocalypse is allegorical. And then you mentioned how some of the analogies that Christ said would also be allegorical, metaphorical. But a Protestant couldn't argue, ha, when Christ said upon this rock, I should build my church, it is totally metaphorical. Even then, I think it would still apply. But the what is literal is that Christ actually said the analogies. So all the scripture that talks about Christ's life is actually literal, but it has anything that is metaphorical is, is because Christ said it. But the fact that he said it is in the Bible, therefore it's to be taken literally. Is that correct? Yeah, uh, sure, absolutely. I mean, the words, there's a, you know, there's one thing I remember in, and I was in Nova Sordo in the seminary that um, we were taught, of course, we were taught the, you know, the historical critical method and the, all that sort of, which is, you know, basically been really condemned by the church and because and, it's uh, taking the authority of the scriptures, uh, uh, denying the authority of the scriptures. But we also remember being taught that there was a group of, of um, Pro, or not Protestant, but uh, quote unquote Catholic and probably Protestant. I think I can't remember. Um, scripture uh, uh, commentators, you know, uh, biblical scholars, etc., would get together. They called themselves, I think, the the Jesus Seminar, and their whole purpose was to figure out in Scripture the you know for without a doubt the words that are that our Lord said, and it got to the point of such absurdity that they came to the conclusion that the only words that you can be absolutely sure that Jesus Christ had said was amen. <laughs> Outside of that, that was it. So, I mean, so you have the abs- absurdity that you have of biblical scholars, you know, of modern biblical scholars today, you know, that will take those things and, and you know, that's just a denial, of course, of of scripture, the the word of God. This denial of the church is denial of everything. Um, so, you have to be very careful, um, you know, with that. But this is why, again, you certainly, um, you know, like I said, the one of the encyclicals of Pope Leo the Thirteenth talks about the church and about the scriptures and about the the need for Catholics, of course, to to study scripture, but always in the light of what the church has given us as the interpreter of it. You'd feel pretty ripped off, wouldn't you, Father, if you did buy a book as a result of that seminar, a book titled What Christ Really Said, and you opened it up and it was only Amen. It's pretty poor. It, and apparently, apparently they had spent years doing that. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, years. Uh, so, I don't know. I, I remember laughing about that when we were taught that. 